guys. Welcome to the True Crime Sisters podcast. I'm Harry and I'm here with my sister, Bill. How are you this week, Bill? Good, thanks, Harry. We had the plebiscite results come back in where everyone voted whether they think gay people should be allowed to get married. And although the process was quite horrible, it did come back as a yes vote. So I'm still feeling pretty good. That only just happened. So yeah, I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm good as well. I'm happy to hear that vote for you, of course. So... Yeah, it's been a good week. Before we get into this week's case, I just wanted to point out that we have a new theme song this week, which we are loving. So it was kindly made for us by one of our amazing listeners, Jesse, who is a talented composer. If any of our listeners are podcasters or need theme songs created, you can find Jesse at https dot dot slash slash soundcloud.com slash Jesse King composer. And you'll find a link to Jesse's work in our episode notes as well. I also wanted to say a special thank you to our Patreons and hello to all our newbies this week. We have Natasha, Theron, or Theron, Ebony, Jesse, Abby, Robbie, and Haley. So thanks for joining up, guys. We're just about to start working on December's Patreon episode, and we already have three other episodes out. So if you wanted to check out some extra episodes from us, feel free to go and have a look on our Patreon page. And with that, I'll hand you over to Bill. Thanks, Harry. So today we will be discussing the 1986 murder of Beth Barnard in Phillip Island, Victoria. For those of you that don't know, Phillip Island, as the name suggests, is an island that is located approximately 140 kilometres southeast of Melbourne CBD. It is separated from the mainland of Victoria by a 640 metre concrete bridge and is a very popular summer holiday tourist destination for Melburnians. 3.5 million people visit the island annually, attracted to sites such as the nightly penguin parade, the Phillip Island Grand Prix circuit, and of course, the beautiful beaches. It is also home to approximately 7,071 permanent residents, according to the 2001 census, so it is a small close-knit community for most of the year. And just to give you an idea of the tourism, the island's population grows to approximately 40,000 over the summer. Beth Barnard lived in a small town on the island called Ryle, which is a small fishing town. 23-year-old Beth was very popular on the island and was known to be bright, kind, as well as very beautiful. She was living in Ryle alone on her family's farm. Beth got along really well with everyone she met, and everything we've read about her emphasised what a likeable young woman she was. Along with being likeable and attractive came the affections of many men, some of which were unwanted by Beth. She had feelings for only one man on the island, a farmer from a well-known and respected island family. Unfortunately, this man was married, but this didn't stop him from engaging in an affair with Beth. Fergus Cameron was 36 years old in 1986, 13 years Beth's senior. He was the son of the well-known Cameron family, who partially owned the Phillip Island Grand Prix, as well as a farming enterprise. On Monday the 22nd of September 1986, Sergeant Cliff Ash was working the morning shift at Cowes Police Station. Two local men, Ian Cairns and Don Cameron, entered the station. Ian Cairns was the brother-in-law of Fergus Cameron, married to his sister Marnie, and Don Cameron was Fergus's brother. When Sergeant Ash asked the men why they were there, they began speaking long-windedly about difficulties that were occurring within the family without making any real point. The rambling continued for approximately 10 minutes before Ash asked them straight out, what are you trying to say? Don said, there's been a domestic argument. It's Beth. 
I don't think she's well. Once Ash finally got it out of the men that Beth was actually dead, murdered on her bedroom floor, he sprung into action. He contacted detectives from the Wonthaggy Criminal Investigation Branch and told them to meet him at Beth's farmhouse. Sergeant Ash, along with Senior Constable Peter McHenry, followed Don Cameron and Ian Cairns from Cowes to Ryle and down the dirt country road to Beth's house. Once there, Sergeant Ash walked up the side driveway until he reached the back door of the house. He quickly noticed that the screen door and the back door itself had been left ajar. He carefully opened both doors and stepped inside the house. The house was dark and very quiet. He only had to take a couple of steps down the hallway before he was standing in front of Beth's bedroom door. Beth lay on the floor, covered by a quilt from the nose down. It was obvious, looking at her face and the large pool of blood on the carpet under her head, that she was no longer alive. Ash carefully approached Beth and lifted the quilt. He was shocked by what he saw. Beth had been viciously attacked, and even lifting the quilt slightly revealed that her throat had been deeply cut. Outside the house, Senior Constable McHenry kept an eye on Ian Cairns and Don Cameron. He was growing increasingly concerned by the two men's lack of concern about the young woman laying dead inside the house. Don and Ian reportedly laughed, chatted and joked as though they were completely unbothered by what they had seen. It was extremely unusual. Not long after Mick Henry and Ash arrived on scene, three CIB detectives arrived from Wonthaggy. They were Sergeant Ron Cooper, Senior Constable Alan McFadden and Senior Detective Alan Lowe. As the detectives approached the house, one of them noticed that there were a couple of drops of blood on the path near the back door of the house. The detectives on scene noted that Beth's bedroom looked much like the bedroom of any young woman. There were clothes on the floor, perfume bottles and photos, and stuffed toys. Not long after the CIB detectives arrived, homicide detectives who had driven in from Melbourne joined them. They were Rory O'Connor and Gary Hunter. A police photographer and fingerprinting specialist also joined them. Don Cameron and Ian Cairns were taken to the Cowes Police Station to have their statements taken. The two men recounted the events of the previous night. According to them, Fergus's wife Vivian had confronted him about the affair with Beth the previous night. After Fergus admitted it to her, she reportedly attacked him with a broken wine glass. The married couple then went to the hospital to have it stitched up after calling Marnie and Ian to come over and keep an eye on their two sleeping sons. The more information the men gave, the more it sounded like they were implicating Fergus's wife Vivian in the murder of Beth. She had the motive, her marriage was on the brink of divorce because of her husband's wandering eye. But as it turned out, there was far more to the story. Meanwhile, at the crime scene, forensic analysis was taking place. When the quilt was taken off Beth's body, multiple stab wounds were revealed. Her pink nightie had been lifted up, exposing her chest. Possibly the most disturbing injury to Beth's body was a deep wound in the shape of an A carved into her chest, which appeared to have been made post-mortem. Immediately, the investigators thought of Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic novel, The Scarlet Letter. For those that don't know, The Scarlet Letter is about a woman who must wear a scarlet letter A on her chest to show that she is an adulteress. The obvious link between Beth and the main character in the book was the scarlet letter A 
and the fact that both women had engaged in affairs. Forensic investigators took the quilt as evidence and noticed that next to Beth, there was a wood handle knife covered in blood. Upon examination, it was suspected that this knife actually wasn't the murder weapon. The stab wounds indicated a specific type of fishing knife that was popular in the 80s that had a small prong on either side of the main blade. The attack on Beth was vicious and frenzied and was particularly focused around her face. This indicated strong emotions behind the attack and a possible attempt to destroy the beauty Beth encompassed in life. The scene strongly indicated a crime of passion, which is a crime that is committed under extreme emotional circumstances. It appeared that the attack began on the bed as Beth's sheets were soaked with blood and there was a bloody handprint on the wall next to the bed. Based on the crime scene, it appeared that Beth was either pulled from the bed or fell from the bed and the attack was continued on the bedroom floor. She had defended herself the best she could and her hands and arms sadly showed this fact. The struggle appeared to have ended as quickly as it began. Many items near the attack site remained completely undisturbed. Strangely, the quilt that covered Beth's body had not come from Beth's bedroom, but had been taken from another bedroom in the house. There was evidence in the bathroom that the offender had used the sink to wash up after the attack. There was some residual blood around the taps. There was no sign of forced entry to the home, and it seemed that the killer had come in through the back door. Maybe the door was already unlocked. It didn't seem as though Beth had gotten up to answer the door, as evidence suggested she had been attacked where she lay in bed. Police canvassed the area, checking in with the neighbours to see whether any, anyone had heard anything strange the night before. The houses on Beth's road were spaced quite far apart, but Beth's closest neighbour did remember seeing a car drive up the road the previous evening at approximately 7.50pm. The car turned into Beth's driveway and sat there for a few minutes with the headlights still on. Another neighbour remembered hearing what sounded like a ute or truck drive past her house at approximately 3.30am, which was unusual, on the quiet street. Police officer McFadden was the one to take Donald Cameron's statement. Don said he had received a phone call at approximately 7.45am from a good friend of the family, Robin Dixon. She had Fergus and Vivian's two sons at her house and wasn't sure what to do with them, as she had to leave for work. She was able to send the school-aged child on the bus with her own children, but she needed Don to come and collect the other boy, as she couldn't get in touch with Fergus or Vivian. When he returned home with the boy, his wife Pam made a phone call to Marnie and Ian's house and Fergus picked up the phone. According to Don, Fergus appeared to be somewhat distressed and quickly handed the phone over to Ian. Ian told Pam that something had happened and they would have to talk later. Quickly, Fergus got back on the phone and explained to Pam that he had been involved in a fight the night before and had to be treated at hospital. Pam pressed for more information about the fight, but Fergus was non-communicative. After they got off the phone, Pam and Don speculated about what the fight may have been and thought that it may have had something to do with Beth. Not long after, Ian called back and said that Fergus's Land Cruiser was missing. He also told Don that Fergus wanted them both to go around to Beth's house to let her know what had happened. This is how Ian and Don ended up at Beth's house that morning. Prior to going to Beth's, they swung past Fergus and Vivian's house and looked around briefly to see if there was any sign of Vivian. There wasn't. Then they drove to Beth's house. 
After taking Don's statement, McFadden was shocked by how cool, calm and collected he appeared, even stating, you'd think these blokes discovered bodies every day of their lives. McFadden wanted to talk to Robin Dixon next, the woman who had collected the Cameron boys in the middle of the night. He wondered whether she might have been the last person to speak to Vivian. According to Robin, Vivian called her in the middle of the night and asked her if she and her husband, John, could have the boys for the rest of the night, as she was at the hospital with Fergus. This was reportedly at approximately 3am, which was actually well after they had reportedly left hospital. There was nobody at the home when they arrived except the boys. She noticed that Vivian's sedan car was still in the driveway and her handbag still on the bench and they thought they must have left quickly. The next morning, Robin tried to call Vivian to pick up the boys, but there was no response. And that's obviously when she called um, Don Cameron. So when she was trying to call Don Cameron, she found that the phone was actually engaged and it was engaged for approximately 15 minutes before she could get through to him. Sergeant McFadden was immediately curious who Don Cameron had been on the phone to when Robin tried to call. Later that afternoon, when Pam Cameron was driving over the bridge from San Remo to the island, she noticed Vivian's Land Cruiser parked on a nature strip near the bridge. By that point, she knew that Beth had been murdered and, and that nobody knew where Vivian was. By the time police arrived at the car, Pam had already removed the keys from the ignition, taken Vivian's handbag from the front seat and locked the doors. So Pam took the stuff out of the car and like tampered with the car. She didn't realise that it was a crime scene at that point. So she wasn't doing anything malicious by taking things from the car or turning off the ignition. She just kind of thought she was helping. But obviously, now knowing that Vivian disappeared, she probably shouldn't have actually touched the car at that time. Police were shocked by the location of the car because they'd been driving to and from the island um, using that bridge for the majority of the day. When McFadden heard that Pam had found Vivian's handbag in the car, his mind immediately flashed back to when Robin told him that she'd picked up the kids and seen the handbag on the bench because, in theory, if it was true that she had seen the handbag on the bench and Vivian had killed Beth like everyone was implying, this meant that she would have killed Beth, went back home to get her handbag, only to be quickly dumping her car with the bag still in it, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. You'd think if she'd just killed someone, she wouldn't bother returning home to get her handbag if she was planning on just disappearing anyway. So the immediate implication of Vivian's car being abandoned next to the bridge was that she'd committed suicide by jumping from the bridge. So if you didn't get from what we were saying, basically what everyone who spoke to police was implying was that um, Vivian was the one they should be looking at for the murder of Beth because of... Um, the affair that was carrying on. With Beth and Fergus. With Beth and and Vivian's husband, Fergus. So just to make that clear, because it's kind of a lot of information, a there's lot a lot of, of names. So just to clear it up, everyone who's a part of the Cameron family, which is the people that they've been speaking to and family friends, is really implying that Vivian was the one with the motive to kill. That's what they think happened. Yeah. Well, that's what they say they think happened. Detectives looked closely at the guardrail along the side of the bridge they thought maybe if she had jumped off the bridge, there would be a break in the salty residue that covered the rails. There was nothing there that suggested that Vivian had jumped. When the police canvassed local shops, they learnt from a baker that he had noticed the car there that morning at about 5am, which left a small window in, the, in which the car was abandoned where it was found. Before we go any further with the ins and outs of this case, we need to have a look at where it all began. 
Fergus and Beth met when they were both working at the Penguin Parade. Fergus also decided to employ Beth as a farmhand. The two fell in love and began an affair, despite the fact that Fergus had been married to Vivian for 10 years and they had two sons. Fergus and Vivian's relationship was reportedly already strained before the affair began. Vivian suspected an affair between her husband and Beth for a long time. She felt like Fergus gave Beth special treatment that he didn't afford to his other employees. Despite Fergus trying to stop seeing Beth several times, he couldn't stop himself. In 1985, around a year before Beth's murder, Vivian caught them in the shearing shed with Fergus's arms around Beth. She accused them of an affair then, but it was denied and Fergus told her that they were just good mates. To learn more about Beth, detectives got in contact with her close friend Marie. Understandably, Marie was devastated to learn of what had happened to Beth. She told the detectives about how she had spent the day with Beth before she had been murdered. They had hung out at Marie's house. Beth had had a flu and was on antibiotics, which she kept in her handbag. The women chatted about Beth's relationship with Fergus Cameron, and Beth confided in her best friend that she was getting sick of the whole situation. She was preparing herself to give Fergus an ultimatum when he came over that night, choose between her and Vivian. After hanging out with Marie, Beth left to go home and get dinner ready for Fergus. One of Vivian's work colleagues from her job at the Phillip Island neighbourhood house, Glenda, was confused when she heard on the news that Vivian was missing and that her car had been abandoned at 5am and she immediately placed a phone call to police. Homicide detectives arrived at her house to talk to her. She told them that she'd spoken to Vivian after the car had reportedly been abandoned, so on the day that Beth's body was found. She said that she'd received a phone call at approximately 10am from Vivian and that it was just a casual conversation. She was sure that it was that morning that it had taken place because she had a friend staying with her who could also verify hearing Glenda talking to Vivian on the phone. Yeah, and so obviously um, because the baker saw Vivian's car there at 5am, it would basically be impossible for Vivian to have made that phone call at 10am because by then everything had started. Beth's body had been found. It was kind of mayhem. So if Beth, if Vivian had abandoned her car at 5am and gone and jumped straight off the bridge, it wouldn't be possible for her to place that phone call. So it really did kind of create some controversy and doubt. She said that when Vivian placed the call, the call had ended because someone on Vivian's end had interrupted the call and at the time she just assumed that it was Vivian's kids. Glenda felt as though the police were doubting her account of the phone call but she was 100% sure of what she had heard and had her friend that was staying with her backing her up. So, so it's very interesting. It is like, very interesting. It's one of those very circumstantial cases. Like if this call had happened, it changes things. It, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of questions. This case is one of those cases that leaves a lot more questions than answers. Absolutely. Yeah, when I was trying to research it, it was I was getting so confused with the different names and the times because I was thinking, well, how could that be if that was the case? But it turns out it's not a clear-cut it's case. Not a clear, and even the police, like, differing opinions because there's so much conflicting evidence that there's really just no clear picture. Which is really so. unfortunate for Beth and her family. When Senior Constable McFadden went to visit Fergus Cameron a few days after the murder of his girlfriend and disappearance of his wife, he was shocked by how unfazed Fergus appeared. Despite losing the two supposed loves of his life, he reportedly sat in his PJs 
commiserating about his own injuries. When Senior Constable McFadden asked him about his wife, he painted her as violent, hysterical, insane and jealous. He spoke more kindly about his relationship with Beth, but didn't seem overly emotional about losing her either. When pressed about what had happened on the night of the murder, Fergus Cameron recounted events from his own point of view. And I did just want to touch on that there's kind of um, this night is kind of recounted from many people's points of view. So it's, if it sounds like we're kind of going over the same thing again and again, it's because each person sort of has a different point of view of what took place that night. So we're just trying to sort of bring it all together so that you guys can have your own opinion about what you think happened that night. So after Fergus finished his shift at the Penguin Parade that night, he went to Beth's where she met him at the back door. He made up to tell the senior constable that when he arrived, Beth's back door was unlocked and that he warned her that she shouldn't be so unsafe. The two had dinner, kissed and cuddled, but didn't have sex. According to Fergus, he promised Beth he would visit her the next morning and left at approximately 9.05pm. He then headed home. When he got there, he found Vivian sitting at the dining room table with his sister Marnie. Vivian was staring intensely at the table, not looking at him, visibly shaking. Marnie was agitated and snapped at him. We called the Penguin Parade at 8pm and they said you'd left. Where have you been? After his sister left, he admitted to his wife that he had been at Beth's. Vivian reportedly immediately rushed at him with a wine glass and smashed it over his head. I knew you were with that little bitch. The wine glass broke over the left side of his head and cut his ear. She whacked him another two or three times. Fergus said that he then went into the spare room and sat on the bed. While there was blood found on the spare bed, it didn't belong to Fergus. Eventually Vivian's rage subsided and she became concerned about the injuries she had caused her husband. They called Marnie to come back over and look after the kids and took off for Waverley Hospital in Cowes. According to Fergus, when they got to the hospital, Vivian turned off the car ignition and said to him, I'm going to get the little bitch. And just remember, this is from Fergus's point of view, so we cannot confirm whether she actually did say that. According to staff at the hospital, Fergus was badly cut and was very vague about how the injury had taken place. They also noted that Vivian seemed very nervous, upset and tense. She reportedly pressed doctors for Fergus to be allowed to stay at hospital overnight, but they were adamant that his injuries weren't severe enough. Reportedly, the couple left hospital no later than 12.30am. Reportedly, when they got home from the hospital, they decided they were going to separate as a couple. Fergus said that Vivian was going back to Melbourne and that she was going to leave the kids with him. But when the police went and sort of questioned Vivian's friends and family about this, they were all adamant that Vivian would never leave without the boys. Vivian then drove him to Marnie's house at approximately 2am and he says that this was the last time he saw her. When police examined Vivian and Fergus's house on the day of Beth's murder, they found a significant amount of blood. There were bloodstains in the hallway, the spare room, the bathroom and also tissues in the bathroom and blood in the front seat of the Holden Kingswood. When they entered the spare room, there were papers scattered all over the bed covered in blood drops. There were also blood drops sprayed on the walls. The search turned up no signs of a broken wine glass. This crime took place in the days before DNA, 
So the main way of identifying and ruling in and out possible offenders was blood typing. In blood typing, there are four different blood types, A, B, AB and O. Luckily for forensic investigators, the three main people they were interested in had different blood types. And it turned out that there were bloodstains that belonged to all three of them. The blood on the walls of the spare room were Vivian's, but the blood on the papers in the spare room were Beth's. Fergus's blood was on his shirt and the tissues, and Vivian's blood was found on a maroon towel in Beth's bathroom, and the blood drops outside the back door of the house at Beth's house were Vivian's as well. It appeared that Vivian had actually lost quite a large amount of blood. Despite there being a couple of different suspects in Beth's murder, there was only one person that had links to both Beth and Vivian, and that was Fergus Cameron. Vivian's friends struggled to believe that Vivian would have jeopardised her own and especially her boys' lives by killing Beth and herself. Like most mothers, her children were her life, and whenever she had spoken to her friends about leaving Fergus, her plans had always included taking her boys with her. In Marnie's statement, she spoke of arriving at Fergus and Vivian's house that night to watch the boys and seeing blood-soaked clothing and towels in the house. However, by the time police searched that house, they didn't see any of these items. They immediately wondered whether the items had been removed before their search. Police were divided about who they thought had killed Beth. Senior Constable McFadden was convinced by Glenda that Vivian had made contact with her at 10am and probably wasn't the killer. He also didn't think that she had committed suicide off the bridge. Nobody to this day has ever successfully committed suicide off the Phillip Island Bridge that we know of. Homicide detective Rory O'Connor thought that Vivian was more than capable of carrying out the murder and that anybody can be driven to that point. Surprisingly, despite having all the makings of a sensational news story, lust, money, infidelity and a missing person, Beth's murder didn't feature in the news much off the island. When the results of the post-mortem examination came in, they were unsurprising given the nature of Beth's injuries. The stab wounds to Beth's chest pierced her pericardium. As a result, Beth bled into her chest cavity and within minutes would have passed away. After the police continued to make inquiries into the case and with no new information coming to light, they had to settle on the idea that Vivian had killed Beth and then committed suicide. They had no solid evidence to say otherwise, despite some people openly having an inkling that something else may have taken place. Even the coroner who held an inquest into Vivian's disappearance in 1988 couldn't come up with an alternative and concluded that Vivian must have jumped from the Phillip Island Bridge. And unfortunately, that's pretty much where the story ends as far as new facts and the facts that we know. There was never an arrest or any justice for Beth's murder and no trace of Vivian Cameron has ever been found. Of course, there's a lot of speculation about what happened, but much of the case just seems to have been swept under the rug. Fergus Cameron ended up remarrying in 1993. Also in 1993, a well-known true crime author, Vicky Petridis, released a book called The Phillip Island Murder, which was a very popular book throughout most of Victoria. Curiously, the book was banned from being sold on the island, as it had many implications about the potential involvement of, of Fergus Cameron in both the murder of Beth and the disappearance of Vivian. Whether Fergus was involved or not, the people of Phillip Island didn't want to know about it. According to Myra Moback, a resident of the area, she felt like because the Cameron family was so well respected, 
People wanted to defend them by not buying the book. She stated, There has been a lot of speculation about how it happened and who did it, and a lot of criticism of the way it was investigated. The real interest will continue as long as there is no full stop at the end of the story. Despite advances in DNA technology and talk of retesting of samples, no results have ever been publicly released. There are people who are prepared to state that they believe there was a cover-up. One journalist said, with a tragedy like this, surely it should be totally out in the open. Justice hasn't been done. No one has been arrested. So it's a very, very sad case. Um, yeah, it sounds like so much mixed emotions and yeah. mixed theories from people on and off the island. Yeah, there's a lot going on, but just absolutely no answers. Like, I don't think it's fair for us to publicly state our opinions. With that, our thoughts go out to Beth's family as well as Vivian's. It's an absolute tragedy, and at the end of the day, two women are gone and it's just devastating. And also to the Cameron family as well, who did lose the mother of those two beautiful boys thank you for listening guys and we hope you tune in again next week please stay safe